When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Something else. Test, 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 test. Perfect. Dear listener, that's Stan Mihalik. His father, Stefan, had a dangerous encounter with a mysterious object back in 1967. It's a remarkable story and is considered one of the best documented UFO cases in Canada. We couldn't fit it into the proper transmissions, but it deserves your time. So what do you say, dear listener? One more scary story for the road. I'm MJ Benias, and from something else, this is Fringe Network, Alien State. Bonus transmission, the Falcon Lake Incident. So I'm sitting down with Stan Mahalik. We have some coffee and chat for a bit. After we're settled, I ask him to retell the day his father, Stefan, came home after the incident in May 1967. Stan was 10 years old at the time. My dad came home that evening. He went directly to our parents' bedroom. And, you know, the explanation was, my father has been injured, he's sick. After that... My parents' bedroom is now a sick room. Most of the time, the door was closed. The next evening, Sunday, a reporter from the Winnipeg Tribune and a photographer come by to speak to Stefan. Stan still hadn't seen his dad or had any clue what was going on. The next day, after breakfast, Stan's mom says his dad is well enough to see him. I opened the door to the bedroom, and the first thing that hit me was the stench. And it was coming from him. The smell was rotten eggs and the smell of a burning electric motor. And I remember him, him lying in the bed. He's wearing his striped pajamas. He's very pale. His face is thin. His voice is harsh. And he, he's talking like this. But he smiles at me and he pats the bed and, and invites me to sit down. And I sit down next to him and he tells me it's okay that he'll get better, and it's all good. 
I can only imagine how frightening this must have been. We all remember how big and invincible our parents seem when we're young. Weird smells, weird looks, it's terrifying. But behind that fear, there's curiosity. What could have happened? What is happening? Well, Stefan decided to tell his son. Stefan was spending a weekend at Falcon Lake in Manitoba, Canada. He was an amateur geologist and came across a promising vein of quartz. He was kneeling, chipping away at the stone when suddenly a flock of birds started getting rowdy and making a lot of noise. And he looks up and there's two craft in the air. They are approaching him. He sees that they are oblong. They're glowing. They're quite bright. And as they're coming down, slowly, he notices that there's no noise. There's no jet engine. There's no propeller sounds. There's no motor sounds. One continues its descent while the other stops. Distance from the ground, I don't know, a few hundred feet, but it's up there. It's hovering. The first craft continues and lands on a outcrop of, of granite that is in front of my dad. When he looks up, the second craft is continuing to hover. But as he's watching, it's gone. And it goes directly back the way it came. When I asked him, how fast? He says, fast. And I said, well, come on, Dad, how fast? Very, very fast. So he doesn't know, but pretty damn fast. So there's this thing sitting. He can tell, however, that it's cooling down because the color is changing. And now he's able to make out more of what appears to be a metal finish. He's not sure what this thing is, and he's not sure what to expect. But it's not moving. His industrial mechanic side of his brain is going, I don't hear an engine, I don't hear a motor. There is a sound of clinking. There's the sound of hissing. There's the sound of whirring. He's talking about a... He's still sitting there, and he hasn't broken cover. He's not ready to stand up yet. So he whips out a piece of paper, and he sketches it, puts in dimension lines based on estimates. Yeah, about three feet here, 30 feet here. And he's writing down as fast as he can all the salient features of this thing. The craft looks like, like two cereal bowls, one on top of the other. There were slits in the upper dome portion of it, and those slits were emitting a very bright violet light. As he's sketching, something strange happens. The hatch opens on the side of the craft. He heard what he said sounded like children's voices. One higher, one lower, one higher, one lower. He's hearing is the sound children make in a schoolyard. Stefan, a former military man, isn't afraid. He's curious. He assumes, okay, this is some kind of experimental test craft. We don't have anything like this. So he figures, now I see that there's something going on. Maybe I can do something here. Maybe they're in trouble. He gets up and he approaches the craft and he's calling out to the craft. He tries Russian, no response. He tries all the other languages he knows, German, uh, throws in a little French and Italian, <clears throat> no response. So as he's getting closer, he's realizing he's having a hard time keeping his eyes on it because it's still glowing. All of it is quite violet, 
quite bright and quite hard on the eyes. Stefan gets close enough that he's able to touch the craft. He was still wearing rubber gloves when he was chipping away at the rocks earlier. He touches it with the tips of his fingers, and immediately all the four fingertips on his rubber glove are melted. And he goes, whoop, shit, that's hot. And it's melted the tips of his gloves. The portal closes. How does it close? He always described it as the shutter of a camera, where it's one piece going over the other piece going over the other piece. So he notices that that closes, and he's still contemplating his burnt fingertips, and he's stepping back. And in a matter of seconds, the craft begins to rotate, and then starts to rise. There are some holes in a grid pattern on the side of the craft underneath to his left. And as he watches this thing begin to rise, a blast comes out of those little holes and hits him square in the chest. The blast startles Stefan and he falls down. And he realizes his plaid shirt is on fire. So he tears off this thing and his undershirt is also burning. He tears that off. Meanwhile, while he's tearing all this stuff off, the craft is now quite a bit higher, treetop. And it's continuing to spiral or to turn counterclockwise. And then, gone. Just like the other craft, it took off on the same path and was gone in the blink of an eye. Stefan stomps out any remaining fire that's on his clothes or the surrounding area. His shirt is off and he sees that he's been badly burned. There's a grid-like pattern of sores that begin to appear on his chest where he'd been hit. He stumbles his way through the woods, disoriented and vomiting along the way. He eventually makes his way to a hospital where he's treated for his burns. He's picked up by his older son and finally brought home. As Stefan finishes his story, 10-year-old Stan is in awe. I was amazed. I remember leaving, and the first thing that comes out of my mouth and out of my head is, oh my God, aliens, a flying saucer. Oh my God. Stefan's story eventually appears in the Winnipeg Tribune. It's titled, I Was Burned by a UFO. It caught a lot of people's attention. The investigators started showing up at our door. It was a tsunami of people. The case became known as the Falcon Lake Incident and was investigated by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police, or the RCMP, and the Royal Canadian Air Force. The RCMP retrieved some items from the site of the encounter, including Stefan's shirt, some tools and soil samples. The clothing and soil were tested at a crime lab and were determined to be highly radioactive. But reporting the story turned out not to be the best thing for the Mahalik family. And I think that, for many years later, that became one of his regrets. After Stan's father reported the incident to the press, it stirred up a lot of problems for Stefan and his family. I was bullied horribly. The kids immediately latched onto this. You know, did I have green skin? Did I have scales? Um, so I was a target. And in a very short period of time, I got to be very old for a 10-year-old. Random people continued to show up at their house, unannounced. There were a lot of people who showed up that had their own agendas. There were a lot of people who came in who said, I have a great idea, we should do this. Stan's brother, who was in his 20s, protected their dad in his own way. He became the liaison. 
My brother handled the pressure of being the gate guardian. He was largely responsible for telling people, no, he's not able to see you, go away. He was tired of having to repeat the story. Constant investigations and visits exhausted the family. One family friend suggested that Stefan should write it all down. It was skinny little booklet describing the incident. And then when a reporter came to the door and said, can I speak to your dad? My brother would say, no, he's not available, but hang on. And he would hand him a booklet and say, there you go. There's the story. Ciao. Dad thought it was brilliant. They printed these booklets out of pocket and gave them away for free. For dad, it was peace of mind. Get it out the door. Done. Gone. But people still kept coming, wanting to hear him talk. It wasn't just investigators and journalists coming to see him. One thing that he did not abide was the people who came to say to him, I believe you. Dad would say, well, I didn't lie. Story happened the way it happened. No, no, no. I believe you that they were from another world. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. I never said they were from another world. I said, that likelihood exists. That possibility is there. But I never, you know, I never said that. That sort of started Dad on a road of, what kind of worms have I opened here? I mean, uh, oh my God, I've got religious people coming to me telling me that I was contacted by, you know, a super being that, that has a message for mankind. It was like, oh my God. So what have I done? For most of the rest of his life, he was quite unhappy with his choice to tell the public. And I think that became one of his regrets. Stefan created a headache for himself. The publicity didn't let up. A month after the incident, he recovered from his injuries and went back to work. People continued to visit him. But a few months later, he passed out. The marks on his abdomen begin to reappear as as splotches, um, and he starts to swell up. He gets treated and gets better, but that doesn't completely heal him. His symptoms show up again. He was having nausea spells where he would be sitting and chatting one moment and the next moment the room would be going. And he couldn't understand any of that. And nobody here could give him any answers. In 1968, Stefan went to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota to find some answers. It was the first time he went through a series of medical tests, including psychiatric evaluation. They described everything physically and psychologically about my father in gritty, nauseating detail. Um, The prognosis was he'll get better, (laughs) Um, but it was based on some pretty sound theory. According to Stan, Mayo's theory was that his dad had been struck with something like a chemical steam or gas, and he was having an allergic reaction. What was it made of? We don't know. Whatever the cocktail was, was enough and hot enough to light his shirt on fire, to burn his undershirt, and to burn him. Was it a weapon? Not likely. Was it an exhaust or some sort of a purging? That's more likely. But when it hit him and when it burned him and it imprinted those holes, those holes, the, the sorry, not holes, the, the marks on his chest. So then the Mayo said, you know, with cases like this, where you have 
contact, a contact allergen, over time, you'll have relapses, but they're going to get lighter and lighter and lighter until eventually you have none. And that's exactly what happened. A few years went by, dad had no other adverse reaction at all. So the Mayo's theory seemed to be accurate and it seemed to be correct. I'm sure the people at the Mayo Clinic heard the story. I mean, was there any reaction from them? Did your dad say, like, these guys, they thought it was crazy or they, they believed in like what? No. When dad came home, we talked about the kind of um, attention he received. And he said hardly any one of them wanted to talk to him about the craft. The only person who did was the psychiatrist who did the uh, psychoval. Otherwise, no. They, they, they didn't treat him as any kind of celebrity. They didn't treat him as any kind of kook. They simply had a puzzle in front of them that they needed to come up with answers for. So they ran all of the tests that, for them, made sense. As you grew up, how did your opinion of this moment or this sort of incident change or what your dad was going through? Were you experiencing changes in, in just how you were thinking about this? No. Um, I never changed my opinion of his story. It only matters that the sequence of events and, and the outcome are exactly as he described them. So for me, fast forward 20, 30 years, the story remains the story. And he never altered the story. He, I never caught him in a moment where he changed some of the facts or he changed the, the sequence of events. It doesn't matter whether you believe me or not if I tell you this. I don't care. My dad didn't care whether you believed him or not. But you must believe that the incident as described occurred as it, as it was described. Now, what that is, that's up to you. And my dad, till the, you know, until the few weeks before he died, uh, he and I had a very private and intimate conversation he was in the hospital. Uh, he was on his way. And before he was rendered comatose by all of the meds he was on, I looked at him in the hospital and I said, Dad, UFO. And he looked at me and I said, come on. Really? Come on. Thinking that after 50 years... He'd come clean and say, yeah, I made it up. So I said, what was it? Tell me what it was. And he says, you tell me, I have no idea. This is either one of the most unique stories ever, or this is the most successful lie ever told. State is hosted by me, MJ Benias. It's reported by me and Casey Georgie. Produced by Casey Georgie. Our associate producer is Stephanie Aguilar. Written by Grant Irving, Casey Georgie, and myself. Editing by Lizzie Jacobs and Megan Dietry. Fact-checking by Matt Giles. Our production coordinator is Lily Hambly. Music by Nolan Schneider. Sound design by Grant Irving and Sam Baer. Engineering by Sam Baer. Our executive producers are Grant Irving, Lizzie Jacobs, Tom Koenig, and Anthony LePay. 
Special thanks to Pallavi Kotamasu, Steve Ackerman, Charlie Yador, and Danielle Jones-Wesley. Thanks to our legal team, Nimra Azmi and Alison Shari, for Davis Wright Tremaine. 